Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. to avoid breaking character and revealing that this is, in fact, a moth. <laughs> I um, see. Uh, in order to play a straight face, because moths have been so, oh, what's the word? Tremendously helpful in making this show, I uh, made an effort to conceal the fact that my article is, in point of fact, Cryptolechia denticulata. It is a moth in the Depressaridae family. I'm right there. Wow. With you, bud. <laughs> um, it was described by Wang in 2004. Uh, it is found in China, specifically Guizhou. Um, that's the article. That's the whole thing. Okay. There is no picture. It is an article on a moth. I feel like they could at least bother to take a picture of this Right? Like, it's already a moth. It's already indistinguishable enough. You may as well at least have tried to get, like, a nice high-definition shot of that sucker just so that we knew, like, what sort of sets it apart. Yeah. Though it seems as though there is an endless amount of these things. So, um, tell me you don't have a town with a, with a zero population. I do not. Okay. All right. Tell me you don't have a film from India. I do not. But you also don't have a moth. I do not. We made it. <laughs> We're safe. Okay, what do, you, what do you have? The title of my article is Child Whispers. Um. um <laughs> that's, uh. So. So, okay, okay. Let me see if I can guess what this is. This is, this is a song. Kind of close, but it's a poem. More in the right direction. Uh. <laughs> it's a collection of poems. Okay, all right. And by it was published in 1922, uh, and it is the first published work of English children's author Enid Blyton. And it was illustrated by her childhood friend, Phyllis Chase. Hmm. There's 28 poems, and it's one of Blyton's most popular and best-known poetry books. Unfortunately, I don't know anything by Enid. Yeah. I've not heard the name before. So perhaps we should go look into what she did. Enid. <laughs> What Enid did. What Enid. She did. So, 
yeah, we'll strip, we're, obviously we're not going with moth. Right. So much moth. There has been so much moth in this in this podcast. We can't we can't justify that. So we get a child whispers. We establish that it is in fact a collection of poems for children mm-hmm. from an old timey sort of thing. It looks like. Yeah, the picture is very strange. I'm not quite but sure what's going on there. Looks very whimsical, though. Yeah. Anyway, Enid, and then we can go to Enid Blyton to learn mm-hmm. about how... Jeez, that is a standard-looking bridge gal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's as British as you can get as an old lady. Yep. Um, well, she uh, lived from uh, August 1897 through November 1968, was an English children's writer whose books have been among the world's best sellers since the 1930s, which is impressive for someone I've never heard of. Yeah, for sure. Uh, she Are we sure she didn't make any very notable children's books, or was it just like... One of those weird instances that her books were outrageously popular in Europe amongst kids, mm. and then in America they just kind of didn't do anything. Could be, because hmm. I feel like there are definitely things that don't ever make it out of certain countries, mm-hmm. although certain they're wildly regions. popular within that country. Or well, we've made we've made that uh, uh, connection several times before, and. What was it? There was a comedian who was like from Mexico that we didn't know anything about. Yeah. But then, like, The Simpsons did a whole thing. Like, they had an entire character that we mm-hmm. were explicitly familiar with. Um, now, Enid, though, I feel like I would have remembered the name Enid as a kid. Yeah. That would have, like, stuck because it would have been funny to me. <laughs> Although, maybe it's just sheer, like, time period that she started. That could be it. I mean, like, a lot of the children's stuff that we would have grown up with were probably more from, like, the 60s or, you know, maybe, like, uh, beyond, like, 60s and towards the 90s, you know? like Yeah, nothing that would have been 30s-ish, yeah, except like, for maybe your, like, real classics. you got to go back, like, Peter Rabbit might be the well, one yeah, thing that, like, yeah, made like, it out like of that era. Like, super, super old, like, folk tales. Folk tales. Yeah, and then Peter, like, Peter Rabbit, I think, is the one. Maybe yeah. Paddington Bear? Maybe. I want to say Paddington Bear might have also been turn of the century, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. Any case. Yeah. Anyway, in any event, this, this person has sold more than 600 million copies hmm. of her books. That's ridiculously good. Yes, it actually. is. Uh, Blyton's books are still enormously popular and have been translated into almost 90 languages, apparently, except for American. <laughs> and uh, her first book, Children Whispers, or Child Whispers, a 24-page collection of poems, was published in 1922. Okay, so she was just starting out in 1922. She might have kept mm-hmm. right on going. She wrote a on a wide range of topics including education natural natural history fantasy mystery and biblical narratives and is best remembered today for her naughty famous five secret seven and adventure series hmm. still still nothing <laughs> yep. but following the commercial success of her early novels such as adventures of the wishing chair and the enchanted wood Neither of which I have heard of. Nope. 
Leighton went on to build a literary empire, sometimes producing 50 books a year in addition to her prolific magazine and newspaper contributions. Her writing was unplanned and sprang largely from her unconscious mind. Hmm. She typed her stories as events unfolded before her. The sheer volume of her work and the speed with which it was produced led to rumors that Blyton employed an army of ghostwriters, a charge she vigorously denied. Hmm. But, um, she had a bit of controversy among critics. Hmm. And um, her books have apparently been criticized as being elitist, sexist, racist, xenophobic, and at odds with the more liberal environment emerging in post-war Britain. But they have continued to be bestsellers since her death in 1968. So they're still bestsellers? Like, Yeah. (laughs) They had to have not made it past England. Like... Cause, but within England, they could still be outrageously popular, and yeah. we may still have absolutely no clue. Sometimes th- sometimes things get popular in one area, and they just have no reason to tell us about what's outrageously popular there. <laughs> so they don't, and we don't go see it because we have what's popular here, and we're satisfied with it because it's popular here. Yeah. So There's only so much you can ingest. Take in, yeah. yeah. You have a limited scope. You are just, you're just a person, you know? Don't be surprised when other people are just people too and they fail <laughs> to, you know, realize that and reach out. That's not something to be, uh, you know, spiteful ab- about them over. <laughs> Though, I mean, it seems like they did this a solid by keeping this, this racist, xenophobic lady to themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's okay. <laughs> we don't need more. We, we have enough. Yeah. We, have enough we had of plenty that. of that going on at the time. We didn't need yeah. more. But... I'm I'm just looking through a lot of these different titles throughout the article. Mm-hmm. I don't re- recognize a single one of these things. That's that's the weird thing to me is like there wouldn't have been one that would have made the jump. Like considering she was writing what fifty books a year. Yeah, and the thing that the thing that irritates me about this article though is not the fact that people were calling her sexist and xenophobic because she very well may have been, but they were criticizing her for having ghostwriters. For children's books, they were like twenty pages long, twenty pages long on Illustrator for most of them. It's just like you don't think a woman can crank out like more than a hundred sentences a year? Like, what's wrong with you? She's not doing the illustrations; she's just writing the stories, and they're short. Like, they are really short. Yeah, I mean, you could pump out a whole book in like a day if you really want to. Yeah, and it's a kids' book; it doesn't have to make sense. The plot doesn't have to be good. The characters don't need to be interesting. You just need to have a plot that goes from point A to point B. In a, preferably in a, as straight of a line as possible, because otherwise the kids are just going to get confused. <laughs> it wasn't as though she was a novelist. She wrote kids' books. I think if you just like lock in on the writing style, you can probably write really good ones really effectively, mm-hmm. give or take a racism, and you know, still still finish finish strong at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, in any case. She uh, felt like she had a responsibility to provide her readers with a strong moral framework, so she encouraged them to support worthy causes. In particular, through the clubs she set up or supported, she encouraged and organized them to raise funds for animal and pediatric charities. The story of Blyton's life was dramatized in a BBC film called Enid, 
featuring Helena Bonham Carter in the title role, and first broadcast in the United Kingdom on BBC4 in 2009. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but BBC4 is not the good one. BBC4 is like the, the weird one. Um, up There's to like, speed on my BBC numbers. I think BBC sh- One is the good one. Yeah, I'm, BBC I, I Two feel is like silver medal. Yeah, bronze. I feel like it's like every time they got something new, they were like, mm-hmm. "Uh, we'll make a new one for that one." Yeah. <laughs> what did you say your show was about? It was about putting things back together. Okay, we're gonna make a new <laughs> channel for this. Apparently, there have also been several adaptations of her books for stage, screen, and television. Which, again, <laughs> none have uh, uh, made the jump to the Americas, as far as I know. Yeah. This, this is a very, okay, very long article for somebody who we have no, <laughs> like, she's not even sort of a cultural icon. But yeah. we'll get a, th- well, I mean, this is a great opportunity to dive into how weird Britain is. That's true. You gotta, you gotta put it in perspective. You gotta mm-hmm. seize the opportunity where it is, you know? And this one is for us to look at the fact that she was born, the eldest of three children, to a cutlery salesman. Ah, cutlery. Yep. Her daddy sold knives, and her mom was a mom. <laughs> As many families was it was true of in the 1890s. Yep. She apparently had some brothers. Mm-hmm. Han- Hanley and Carrie. And she almost died shortly after birth from whooping cough. Mm. But eventually got nursed back to health, not by her mom, but by her dad. Huh. As it would turn out. Guess he took a break in the knife selling. Well, you know, back in the 1890s, knife sales were, they were up. <laughs> Margaret was hot. Uh, so her dad ignited Enid's uh, interest in nature. In her autobiography, she wrote that he loved flowers and birds and wild animals and knew more about them than anyone else that she had ever met. And he also passed on his interest in gardening, art, literature, and the theater to her. And the pair often went on nature walks, much to the disapproval of Enid's mother, mother who showed little interest in her daughter's pursuits. Ah, oh, one of those situations, huh? Okay. Enid was devastated when he left the family af- shortly after her thirteenth oh. birthday. Thirteenth? Yeah, thirteenth birthday. I thought it said thirtieth for a second. I was like, <laughs> "Who cares? Why are you still living at home? Go, go, go! Do life." Um, <laughs> after her thirteenth, after her thirteenth birthday, to live with another woman. Enid and her mother did not have a good relationship, and she failed to attend either of her parents' funerals. Wow. Man. <laughs> you gotta have some cold you heart to not be going to your parents' funerals. The lady knew how to hold her grudge. <laughs> she knew. She knew. Like, no matter what they did, like, they were parents. Like, go to a funeral, at least. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like, they're not even gonna be alive to, to, to rub you the wrong way, so don't, don't even worry about that. <laughs> like, pay them, res- pay them some respect for putting you on the planet yeah. something. <laughs> Uh, apparently, her father taught her to pay, play the piano, and um, she got pretty good at it, almost became a professional musician, and considered, uh, considered enrolling at the Guildhall School of Music. But then she decided to go with writing. And she finished school in 1915 as head girl, which I'm not sure... That is, I'm sh- 
it's probably a, something like Ballad of Joy or something. I would think so. I mean, Sounds like it. We cover over this head girl and head boy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They're, I think they're more like class presidents, I think. Mm, that could be. Um, but yeah, then after that, she moved out of the family home to live with her friend, Mary Attenborough, before going to stay with George and Emily Hunt at Seckford Hall near Woodbridge in Suffolk. Um, I, it just doesn't say who this George and Emily Hunt are. I don't know why she's going there. But Seckford Hall with its allegedly haunted room and secret passageway, provided inspiration for her later writing. At Woodbridge Congregational Church, Blyton met Ida Hunt, who taught at Ipswich High School, and suggested that she train as a teacher. And Blyton was introduced to the children at the nursery school, and recognizing her natural affinity with them, she enrolled in a national Froebel Union teacher training course at the school in September 1916. By this time, she had almost ceased contact with her family. Uh, Frobel? Because she was being <laughs> a Frobel? She was going pro-fro? <laughs> in any case, Blyton's manuscripts had been rejected by publishers on many occasions, which only made her more determined to succeed. Quote, it is partly the struggle that helps you so much, that gives you determination, character, self-reliance, all the things that help in any profession or trade, and most certainly in writing. End quote. In March 1916, her first poems were published in Nash's Magazine. She completed her teacher training course in December 1918, and the following month obtained a teaching appointment at Bickley Park School, a small independent establishment for boys in Bickley, Kent, United Kingdom. Two months later, Blyton received a teaching certificate with distinctions in zoology and principles of education, first class in botany, geography, practice and history of education, child hygiene and class teaching, and second class in literature and elementary mathematics. In 1920, she moved to Southern Hay in Hook Road, Surbiton as nursery governess to the four sons of the architect Horace Thompson and his wife, Gertrude, who, with whom Blyton spent four happy years. Owing to a shortage of schools in the area, her charges were soon joined by the children of neighbors, and a small school developed actually in the house of Gertrude and Horace Thompson. That's kind of odd. I, I guess they were open to that. I don't... Yeah. How does that happen that, like, you just kind of end up with a school in your house? <laughs> You've got to... You have to go out and, like, yeah. advertise that, don't you? Something... Yeah, people don't just show up at your house like, hey, here's my kid, teach him something. Hey, I saw you had a really good nanny there, <laughs> so I thought I would bring my kid over. You, you watch her. You watch my kids instead of me. Okay, but I have to ask my... That's fine. Here's money. Oh, okay. I guess I'll do it. <laughs> fine like I don't really understand how that happened but okay that's something mm. I really wish that we go into the details there but we weren't supposed <laughs> to know we're not supposed to start schools in our homes uh but uh in 1920 let's see how far or oh, not even that's... sort of far down no oh, wait a minute okay <laughs> in 1920 she moved to that's when she moved to southern Hay. 
um, and started this schoolhouse. But then also but in 1920... She relocated to Chessington wait, and wait, began wait, wait, writing wait, wait, wait. in her spare time. Uh, so it's one or the other here, folks. There's, there's, there's laws about these sorts of things. Hmm. In 1920, she did one of these two things because she was in both places for multiple years. Yeah, in 1920, she lived with Horace Thompson and Gertrude for four years. So that would suggest until 1924. Which means that she wrote that book there. While she was living there and yeah. teaching the school there. Right. So... Something about her timeline's a bit off here. Yeah, um... Should we go look at the sources? Because this seems weird. Like, why would they yeah. have messed up the, the lineage like this? In like... I mean, she got her teaching credentials in 1918, so there's not a whole lot of room for her to really be going out, <laughs> getting a job, and then she would have had to, in 1918, gone to the Horace and Gertrude Thompson house, Yeah. started the school, 1922, rolls out of there, rolls over to Chessington, bam, book. <laughs> like, that's the way it would have had to have been. But something here seems poorly researched. Ah, Good. There's this highly reliable Tumblr page called the Enid Blyton Society. Uh, it is a chronology of all the things Enid Blyton. That goes on to cite its sources as nothing. Um, <laughs> and that is the number one source for citations A through, I believe, K on the Wikipedia page. That may be half of our problem. Okay, here we go. Um... All right, so I found, I searched Enid Blyton biography, found a website called the Enid Blyton Society. Um, that's where I'm at. Yep. Oh, that's okay. So I was scroll, I scrolled down to find the time period here, and um. At 1920, she was teaching at Southern A, and she that's when her dad died, and um, then, wait a minute, okay, let's go through this. Uh, she received the news that her father had died suddenly of a heart attack while out fishing on the Thames. At what least... gives you a heart attack while you're just sitting around <laughs> fishing? Anyway. At least that is what she was told, but the truth was that he had suffered a stroke and died in an armchair at home in Sunbury, where he lived with Florence and his new family. Mm. It appears that the true whereabouts of his death was not made public as it would have caused embarrassment owing to Teresa having been so secretive about the breakdown of her marriage. Enid had continued to visit her father at his London office, despite being estranged from the rest of her family, and the news must have come as a dreadful shock. However, she did not attend his funeral or even mention his death to the Thompsons. It may be that, having cut herself off from the rest of the family, she did not feel up to dealing with such a difficult and emotional occasion and answering awkward questions from either her family or her employers. 
Um, I don't want to deal with my emotional trauma. Well, <laughs> time to recede into myself and impose racism and xenophobic tendencies on children. <laughs> Sounds like a healthy outlet. All right, so it, uh, the next bullet point here, or next thing, is uh, she was still writing in her in the early 1920s. So this must have been really early 1920s that she moved to Southern A. Because um, even this makes it kind of weird because well, there's the, a, it starts out the other source sh- while teaching at Southern Hay in 1920 makes it sound like it's in the middle of the year or you know whatever, yeah. but then it says in early 1920s she persevered with her writing and began to achieve. Oh, early 1920s, I guess. It could be any number of years in that early time. Right, frame, right, right, right. I was thinking the early thing, in 1920. Right. The thing I'm looking at, though, is there's a biography of this lady, right? Mm-hmm. This citation, Stony, 2011, keeps coming up. And that's where you're getting your contradictory information from. Mm-hmm. Everything about her moving to Chessington and all that, that's where that's coming from. But the thing is that the website, the Enid Button uh, Society... It itself has no citations. It's just a website. So <laughs> yeah, I don't have no idea um, what to believe here. Yeah. There are facts, and there are, unfortunately enough, alternative facts. <laughs> um, well, okay, so based on the timeline of she moved to Southern Hay in 1920 mm-hmm. and was there for four years, this Enid Blyton Society says that on... The 28th of August, 1924, she married Hugh Alexander Pollock, who was editor of the book department for the publishing firm George Noons. So that lines up that, like, she would have been there for four years and then married this guy and moved away. But she can't. Unless she moved to, what was it? Uh, Chessington. Chessington for like a month and then moved over. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, there's no, there's no stipulation that she lived in the Thompsons' houses. I mean, she just... It does say she moved to Southern A, though. This is... Yeah, it says... Um, this is stupid. She moved to Southern A in Hook Road, Serbington, as nursery governess to the first. Okay, so, all right, <laughs> she moved to Southern A, so she did live there, but she didn't live with Horace and Gertrude. But she taught at their house. So maybe she just continued to make the commute to her, their house on a routine basis and lived in Chessington, also in 1920. Yeah, maybe... Okay, so... Alright, maybe... In 1920, she moved to Southern Hay. Right. And got the ball rolling on all this, you know... Um, like, being the nursery governess to these kids. And then um, starting a school in the house. And then, at the end of 1920, she moved to Chessington but still continued to be that do that schoolhouse and do you know all that stuff for four years and then she got married and then she was like see ya and stopped doing that 
that seems to make sense. It's just worded in the most. She had a busy couple of years. Yeah, is what it comes down to. <laughs> um, there were a couple of years there where there was so much going on, it all got muddled up. Yep. Well, uh, in there's a new series that she uh, started to publish, saying that the, uh, the first tw- of 28 books in Boynton's <laughs> old Thatch series, The Talking Teapot and Other Tales, was published in 1934, the same year as her first book in her Br'er Rabbit series, Br'er Rabbit Retold. Hold on. Oh, note that Br'er Rabbit originally featured in the Uncle Remus stories by Joel Chandler Harris. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a like, uh, gonna say folk tale. Like, yeah, she's just doing her own version of it. Cause yeah, Br'er Rabbit is familiar. But... Yeah, and if you're gonna be racist, you gotta go with the classic. <laughs> yeah. <like> that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's just a uh, lovely children's book. Yeah. Um. The uh, her first serial story and full-length book, *Adventures of the Wishing Chair*, followed in 1937. *The Enchanted Wood*, the first book in the Fairway Tree series, published in 1939, is about a magic tree inspired by the North mythology that had fascinated Blighton as a child. And according to Blighton's daughter Jillian, the inspiration for the magic tree came from thinking up a story one day, and suddenly she was walking in the enchanted wood and found the tree. In her imagination, she climbed up through the branches and met Moonface, Silky, the Saucepan Man, and the rest of the characters. She had all she needed. Uh, all right. So, you're telling me when you write a story, you use your imagination to get as high as possible. <laughs> hmm... I had no idea that creativity meant you think up things and then you write them down. Interesting. That's 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 a fascinating creative <laughs> process. So what you're saying is, is that you create and then you write what you've created. Hmm. hmm. Interesting. That's a that's a fascinating approach that she has. It is. It is. It's a very very thought out writing style. Mm-hmm. The critics said it couldn't be done. It's better than writing stuff and thinking, oh, wait, now I'm going to think of all the things. That's true. <laughs> I mean, how many times have I made that mistake? You know, I just started, I sat down and I read, wrote a whole script and then I started thinking about stuff. And I was like, <laughs> Whoa. I wish I would have thought about that before I started writing words on paper. I know. <laughs> well, you, I mean, talk about wasting paper, man. Jeez. Yeah, seriously. But she actually did write a novel. No, oh, okay. Called the Secret Island, which was published in 1938, and it featured the characters Jack, Mike, Peggy, and Nora. And it was a Robinson Crusoe-style adventure on an island in an English lake. But um, by the 1940s, she became a prolific author. Mm. Later in the 1940s, she published the first of her boarding school storybooks and the first <laughs> novel in the Naughtiest Girl series. <laughs> the Naughtiest Girl in the School, which followed the exploits of the mischievous schoolgirl Elizabeth Allen at the fictional <laughs> Whiteleaf School. The first of her six novels in the St. Clair series, The Twins at St. Clair's, appeared the following year featuring the twin sisters Patricia and Isabella Sullivan. Uh. 
1942, she released the first book in the Mary Mouse series? Yo, this lady just like zoomed in on what kids wanted and then sniped it. <laughs> she was doing she was stealing Bear Rabbit, she was stealing stealing Minnie Mouse, she made a Mary Mouse. <laughs> and then uh, Wow, okay. But this Mary Mouse is about a mouse exiled from her mouse hole. Okay, so it's a little darker. Becomes it's a maid at a doll's house. Jesus Christ, for real? <laughs> she becomes a maid? <laughs> Wow, that that's, is British. Uh, that is intense. literally the most British rendition <laughs> of a, a freaking American children's cartoon there is. Mm. Let's turn. Let's make it depressed. <laughs> let's turn on the depression. She published twenty-three books in that series. Really? Between nineteen forty-two and nineteen sixty-four. Yeah, she did a lot of stuff. But, you know, with a creative process like that, that really, I'm sure, gets the creative juices flowing. Yep. Whenever I have writer's block, sometimes I just need to remember that, you know, if I was just going to be creative, I should just do it. Mm-hmm. I should just be creative mm-hmm. and then write down what I what I think of. Yeah. You know? Just, like, imagine stuff in your brain. And then it's like, oh, okay, I'll write that down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a better, that's a better option than just writing down words. Yeah. So, uh, she had a series called The Adventures of Scamp, Um, but she did that under the pseudonym of Mary Pollock, so not sure why, but uh, one of the titles of one of the books is Scamp and Bimbo. Well, you know, whenever (laughs) you have a creative process that's just... You know, you just sit down and you think up things. Every once in a while, you accidentally think up a pseudonym, too. That's true. And then you write the book under the pseudonym because you think yeah. about the character who's the author, Mary Pollock, mm-hmm. and you think about what story she would think of, and she <laughs> thinks up the scamp, yeah. and, then, and then you're just like, well, I can't write it in my name now. Mm-hmm. I thought it up in hers. <laughs> I got to write it down that way. <laughs> that's, that's the all, creative all process. All of my ideas are copyrighted to this character I created. So because she thought them up. Yeah, she by thought way them of up. me thinking her up, but I yeah. mean, gotta give credit where credit's due. Now you see, <laughs> that's a good a good strategy for writing. Yeah, you just imagine like five different characters, mm-hmm. and then you just let them go to town writing all your books. You imagine five writers in a room, <laughs> and you imagine them like at a table, and you imagine mm-hmm. them writing a script for a thing and tearing mm-hmm. each other down and like building each other up and then like getting like like really like. Uh, on each other's team about certain sections, <laughs> like really enjoying each other's company and then like not enjoying each other's company so much because they have a little bit of cabin fever by a certain mm-hmm. point. And, yeah, yeah. That's a story. That's that's it, though. That's what we just did. We got to write yeah. this down. Get out some paper. We got to write this down. <laughs> Ignore the computers. They, they, don't, they don't matter right now. Pen and paper. Yep. Pen and paper. got to lock it. Pop the cap. Drop the pen. Lock <laughs> the words onto the page through binding it with ink. Shut it down, open up shop. Yep. Oh, well, that isn't very creative. What? So her alternative name, Mary Pollock. Let's just go down to the personal life section for one second, shall we? Okay. On August 28th, 1924, Blyton married Major Hugh Alexander Pollock, mm. DSO. May... 
it was already there. Yeah. This is Mary Pollock. That's it. Yep. Oh, here's um a blatant herself describing her uh, writing technique. Um, I shut my eyes for a few minutes with my portable typewriter on my knee. I make my mind a blank and wait. And then, as clearly as I would see my see real children, my characters stand before me in my mind's eye. The first sentence comes straight into my mind. I don't have to think of it. I don't have to think of anything. Oh, so, so she's beyond thinking. Is not thinking. <laughs> it's <laughs> obviously. Yeah. So we were only taking it so far. You need to take it a step further. Mm. You have to not think. I. You have to. You have to get in the mode of thinking, but then not think at all, and then just let stuff happen in your brain. I just. I can't even believe that. Man. Yeah. Yeah. She knows what's up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that just has a lot of wisdom. Yeah. Just has so much real, like, poignancy, <laughs> you know, to the, to the whole, just don't think. Yeah. Just don't think. Just write books, you idiot. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you massively successful writing children's books? <laughs> if you can't make money making a lot of children's books then there must be something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Quote, Enid Blyton, 1924. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's a little bit about the racism and such. Hooray! <laughs> um, accusations of her racism were first made by Lena Jagger in... Guardian in a Guardian article published in 1966 in which she was critical of Blyton's The Little Black Doll which already starts out troubling. Published a few months later Sambo, the black doll of the title, is hated by his owner and uh, the other toys owing to his ugly black face and runs away. A shower of rain washes his face clean after which he is welcomed back with his now pink face. Oh, no. So, <laughs> yeah, I can uh, I oh, can see God. the uh, racism there. Um, Maybe a bit. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah, I feel a little bit worse for having read that. Do we want to uh, hop on over to the article Gollywogs? Because that sounds fun and enchanting. Uh, uh, you really want to click on the one fun and enchanting link that happens to be in the racism section? No, no, this is not the ra- in the racism section. It is so. <laughs> it, racism, xenophobia, sexism. Golly, what? Revision to later editions. Oh, well, it's in the racism one. Too. Is it also in the racism one? Yes. In oh, the it sentence, is. Jamaica Kincaid also considers the naughty books to be deeply racist because of the blonde children and the black gollywogs. Ah. Uh, yes. All right. Well, I was looking at a link <laughs> later down. I see that now. So. I see what you're saying. <laughs> but, but, I mean, it seems like it's supposed to be a mythical creature. It seems like it's supposed to be teddy bears, goblins, gollywogs. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's uh, search for a different. We thing. Go, we go spanked. 
<laughs> you want to go? You want to go spanked? That's the link we can go to. Spanked, spanking. We have those. You could go to BBC Four. That's true. You could find out about the hierarchy true. of British television. That actually might be. I think I'm down with that idea. I was curious about whether or not that did have some kind of bearing on what kind of programming was on the channel. I've wondered this for years. This is kind of just me greedily satisfying my own <laughs> curiosity now. But we have an inlet. It's legal. Mm -hmm. So BBC4 is, in fact, a British TV channel. Oh, Ooh. really? <laughs> uh, it launched... On the 2nd of March, 2002. So it's not even sort of old. <laughs> it has a schedule that runs from 19 o'clock to 4 o'clock. Which in normal wow. person means late night, I guess. That's That would be 7 to 4 a.m. So why would you have a schedule that runs that time? Why wouldn't uh, you wait until people were awake again? I don't know. Well, oh, okay. <laughs> considering what they put on this program, then, or on this channel, as its entire channel, and they only run for how many hours? Is that eight hours? Yeah. Or nine hours or something? Eight or nine hours a day. Not by much. Yeah. But it shows a wide variety of programs, including commentary, documentaries comedy, that music, international film, original programs, drama, and current affairs. An alternative to programs on the mainstream TV channels. <laughs> you can only catch if you have insomnia. Yep. It is required by license to broadcast at least 100 hours of new arts and music programs, 110 hours of new factual programs, and premiere 20 international films wow. each year. That's actually required. kind of interesting that there's like mandates on it like yeah I, want, I wonder if there's any mandates on like american television channels like that if there were do you really think that national treasure would have been on repeat <laughs> for as many weekends in a row as it was on abc family <laughs> or why thor 2 constantly plays on what is it tnt or everything something? constantly plays on tnt <laughs> tng plays on tnt constantly <laughs> like it's not it's just a station that constantly is playing things. They somehow play more things than they have. Also, how have they gone through like five rebrandings and we still call it TNT? <laughs> like, what happened? <laughs> oh, wait, no, I'm thinking of TNN, aren't I? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that the became Turner, Spike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was TNN, then Spike, then now it's... Is it G4? <laughs> Did it get taken over by G4? I think I feel or like Spike it's take like it over. The or are they were they really the same thing the whole time? And I just <laughs> like thought they were two different things. See now we're getting into a whole a whole thing. <laughs> well, Spike is still a TV thing. channel. Okay, so nothing but happened to Spike. I feel like it was. Uh, Oh, okay. I know what it was. Okay. It was um, Spike TV, and then they removed the TV and just called it Spike. Spike. Yeah. 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 So that's what it was. Seems like a really dated name now, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, I don't even know what it means anymore. <laughs> among any sect of culture, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. 
So it's kind of I don't know. Yeah, it's a, that's an odd name choice, but it's probably better than TNN. Yeah, TNN was just vague. Yeah, very easily it's, confused with TNT and uh, CNN and TBS. Yeah, yeah, you're and right. TNT. They had to get out. They had to get out. They they had no somebody had to make a move. Somebody had to make a move. They made an aggressive one. It became Spike. Fine, not a great network name. Neither here nor there. At least they're they're unique now. Yep. Um, so BBC Four, conveniently available on Freeview in Britain under Channel Nine. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> you have numbers on your on your channels. Yes. But then you're just gonna go reckless abandon. That's right. And just mm-hmm. all right. You have a BBC government. BBC Four is on nine. You have a you have a government controlled <laughs> freeview television system, and you still end up with the wrong number channel on the wrong number station. I mean. There's a one, two, three, four. You can. It should have been that it's simple. It's as yes. easy as just putting it on the right number. You but. have a queen. <laughs> Why doesn't your queen care more? Anyway, um, originally it was supposed to have been uh, launched in 2001. BBC Four instead began to uh, began as a late schedule for BBC Two. So basically, BBC Two's original programming went through its paces and then. For the AM hours, BBC Four's stuff showed up. So, in 2001, they were still had like two channels. Only a time period that they played stuff. Oh no, they still like, do. Like they, I guarantee you, they still they would like do on every start in the morning, stations. end yeah. at night, yeah, and then it would just be like black screen yes. or something. <laughs> yeah, they would be off the air. Wow. People in Britain would stop watching TV, go to bed, or find something better to do. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to stay awake, that's fine, but you I can't mean, stay here. Honestly, in the age of Netflix, they should probably bring that back. Because what's the point of keeping the people there overnight? Yeah. Like, if people want to watch something, they'll just watch it on Netflix. They don't know. Yeah. But, um... So I guess uh, that means BBC Three would have been also... Its own programming like, block, I suppose. Yeah, because it says that BBC Three also got its own channel, so it must they were probably running the uh, BBC Two and then BBC Four and Three somewhere in there. They were all on the same channel. They were all BBC Two, <laughs> and then BBC Two just got too too big and it had to become Three and Four. BBC Two Big. <laughs> That'd be a great name for a channel. <laughs> BBC too BBC big. too big for you. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of funny that they do have sister. The BBC Four has sister channels of. Uh, this is kind of interesting. If you look just on the right hand side, mm-hmm. you see that the BBC Four channel replaced what was known as BBC Knowledge, <laughs> uh, and has current sister channels. As follows: BBC One, BBC Two, BBC News, BBC Parliament, CBBC, <laughs> and CBBS. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> for starters, for starters, where did BBC Three go? What happened? Well, it says in the article that um, it actually launched before BBC Three. For some reason, 
Oh. <laughs> so they that must have been a confusing time in Britain. Yeah. BBC Four shows up. Is there, is there an exciting prequel channel that we're waiting on? <laughs> or that would have been brilliant though if they had just BBC Four for years. Then one day BBC Four like kept on going, but then they started showing BBC Three, and what BBC Three was was programs that were the prequel to literally every program BBC Four had ever done. <laughs> that would have been absolutely brilliant. It would that have just would. been a bunch of people sitting in rooms brainstorming, but <laughs> I don't care. That would have been great. So, um, BBC Four was broadcast in statistically multiplexed stream in Multiplex B that time shares with the CBB's channel, which is on air from 6 a.m. to <laughs> 19 p.m. And as a result, BBC Four broadcasts from 19 p.m. to around 4 a.m. So, in other words, it's on the Cartoon Network, and BBC Four itself is an Adult Swim. Right. Makes sense because BBC Four is notable for the first showing of Larry David's Seinfeld follow-up, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. They also sh- uh, 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 shared the uh, first showing of the thick of it that one where the guy who plays doctor who now swears a lot yeah that one <laughs> um the flight of the concord madman mm. the danish thriller the killing they were all on this station first so this became like hbo mm. for for bbc mm, pretty nice little channel yeah yeah gotta tell you though, i'm very curious about the cbb's that sounds like it has to be a kid's channel. Like, it can't not I be, mean, right? Yeah, it's, it sounds like it has to be. CBBs. CBBs. Oh, yeah, that's got to be kids. Oh, like, that's, logo. Good. that's a kid's channel. Yeah. Come on. Oh. Come. Yep, children age 10 or under. If it wasn't for children, I would have been disturbed. <laughs> now, my question is, is why do you have the 10 and under and maybe 30 or over is really the appropriate age range in this day and age? On yeah. the same station, That's, at like, and then they like they have like no. Yeah. What'd you say it ran to? It ran to seventeen hundred or nineteen hundred. Nineteen hundred. So, so it's, it's, like, it's end to it, end. And yeah, it, it's literally one stops and one, the other one starts. That's the worst idea. <laughs> like it's one thing whenever it's like Cartoon Network and they kind of like ease into it. They start mm-hmm. with the little kid stuff at the beginning of the day, and then they kind of <laughs> they get the gradually more like adult-ish cartoons that are you know amicable for all audiences yeah. and then you put the kids to bed and then you can watch whatever you want to but that's a disastrous <laughs> theorem yeah there's no middle ground this goes from the teletubbies to the curb your enthusiasm on a fl- on just right over the hour <laughs> i can't handle that kind of transition that is just too big of a jump Okay, I mean, like that's that's their prerogative, I suppose. But oh my word! Yeah, it's a different place over there. It sure is. <laughs> oh. Ah, so the Dirk Gently series in 2012 became the first continuing drama series produced entirely and explicitly for BBC Four. Mm. You may recognize Dirk Gently's uh, Holistic Detective Agency as either the series of books that Douglas Adams never finished because he kept revisiting the Hitchhiker's Guide <laughs> series, or as a show that stars Elijah Wood, because I believe it's airing in America now somewhere. I've heard so. tell of it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's somewhere around here. I don't it's remember in these parts. what channel, but unlike our friend Enid, 
Dirk gently has successfully jumped across the pond. Yes, it has. Now, interestingly, we can go from a children's book to Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> there is actually a lot of stuff on it. There's a uh, Monty Python is on here. Oh, okay. But, yeah. It does have a lot of recognizable and, I'm sure, titles that it has. <laughs> Amadeus, Amadeus, Amadeus is in there. Various music concerts. David Gilmore live in Gdansk. <laughs> Remember Gdansk? I feel like we've dealt with Gdansk before. Mm, yes, yes we have. This is not our first dance with Gdansk. <laughs> Let's go to Kirby Enthusiasm. Let's do it, because who knew that we were going to be able to? Yeah. We should take the opportunity. <laughs> Stuff like this doesn't happen every day. But, yeah, um, kind of appropriate since Curb Your Enthusiasm is getting a new season this year, or whatever, you know, 2017 is to you listeners. Could be last year or two years ago, depending on when you listen. But, season nine is on the horizon. It's about time. It's Mm -hmm. only been five years. What do you do with all that time? <laughs> Legitimately kind of angry it took that long. Yes. <laughs> Is that the longest gap between seasons for a TV show? Probably. Unless Drama well, uh, you... might give it a run for its money. Eh, uh, it could be. But I mean, like Futurama wasn't voluntarily like, mm-hmm. hey, let's wait five years. <laughs> Curb your enthusiasm, on the other hand... Mm. And I don't know if you if you count Doctor Who, maybe, but yeah, I do. Even though it is frustrating how long it is between seasons, sometimes I do appreciate the Curb Your Enthusiasm model, and that they just end a season, and then HBO's like, all right, whenever you want to come back. You can have. You can just do whatever you want, <laughs> and then eventually they come back and do another season. It's much better than the. All right, you guys are doing another season right Deal now. Deal with it. Figure out. <laughs> or how you to can make walk away good. forever. <laughs> figure out how to make it good, or we won't just fire you. We'll kill you. <laughs> yeah, it's much much better than uh, pretty much any other show's deal. There's not a whole lot of shows that have this kind of... Momentum. Yeah. And you know all of the cast members are like, you know, whenever he wants to do it, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. Like, they are all on board all the time. So season eight last aired September 11th, 2011. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but it's 2017. Mm-hmm. It's not just been five years, it's been... It'll be close to six. It will be close to six. I have to say, I think my uh, favorite thing on the show was the not only the addition of JB Smooth, right? Who is like just one of my favorite people <laughs> but 
the decision to keep him around after his family, his character's yeah. family moved. Because <laughs> 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 just him and Larry together yeah. is just pure comedy gold. <laughs> uh, well, if you don't know much about it, here, let's go to the critical reception part. Let's see if we can't convince a couple of people <laughs> to give it a shot if they haven't yet. Because I know... In the vein of Seinfeld things, mm-hmm. and increasingly amongst my generation, I find that Seinfeldian humor is not as translatable or as <laughs> universal as I once thought. Yeah. Though it was very popular amongst the prior generation that told mm-hmm. me what to watch on TV and wouldn't let me change the channel because they were larger than I was when I was a child, um, they ultimately formed a lot of my opinions on what was funny, and inadvertently that made me think Seinfeld was undisputably funny it's disputable <laughs> so that being said yeah your enthusiasm i i have run into a surprising amount of people that don't like seinfeld they tell me they don't like his voice they tell me they don't <laughs> think the jokes are funny i tell them they're annoying and they shoot out of my face and then they laugh at me and i said you found that funny and then they were like yeah i found it funny but then my voice gets higher and they start laughing and they say i'm like why are you laughing and they're like because you sound funny and i'm like that's exactly what seinfeld sounds <laughs> This whole thing! <laughs> it's all a bit! You're a hypocrite! <laughs> okay, but... But, Curb Your Enthusiasm, those same people love that show. That's true. That's it's true. A lot of the time. Even though a lot of it is similar humor. <laughs> and I think it's done with it's more just... uh, willingness to A, act. Uh, and B, be a little more human, a little more loose about it. Mm. Everybody in the original Seinfeld cast is characterized to be so high-strung mm. so much of the time that yeah. I think a lot of people don't relate to how high, tightly wound they are. Uh, it's a very, it's not that it's a very Seinfeld humor, it's a very New Yorker humor. Oh, uh, yeah. It's a, you gotta be very tightly wound to appreciate how, like, neurotic <laughs> it would make you to live under those sorts of conditions and stress. And that's exactly yeah. what it does articulate so well, mm-hmm. but people who aren't of that grating, like, feeling overborn with their life <laughs> sort of mentality, they wouldn't understand, they wouldn't relate. Um, and relation with comedy is a little less important. Yeah. But it's apparently one of the most acclaimed shows on television of the uh, 2000s, which I did not know. But uh, it's praised particularly for its writing and for the actor's improvisational comedy. So if you like improv, that's always good. Mm-hmm. The show was enjoyed largely, has enjoyed largely parts of critical reception since its debut and a steadily growing dedicated audience that helped it emerge from its early cult status. It has... Uh, First season has an 80 out of 20 on Metacritic, 93 out of 93 out of 100 for season three, 88 for season four, 91 out of season five, 89 for season six, 81 for season seven, 86 for season eight, and season two is a straight up throwaway because they don't bother <laughs> to tell you. Wow, I don't understand that, but I guess the other one, that one's just not impressive. It's an outlier, so they just <laughs> discount it. Some of the uh, characters in the show have been named some of the best on television. Um, and it is apparently even more unabashedly Jewish than the original Seinfeld series. Yep. The weird thing is, is that doesn't alienate people because ultimately what it does is it makes the people feel like more complete, rounded human mm. characters so people can relate to them more. <laughs> Everybody 
we live in a nation of kitschy religious traditions and backgrounds and families yeah. and stuff. Like, it's <laughs> not you can, you can dabble in it. Even if it's not the religion that, like, is predominant, mm-hmm. it does kind of all herald back to a similar feeling, a similar human element of, like, exploring that part of our humanity that yeah. I think everybody, at least in their family, has somewhere. <laughs> like, I haven't count- encountered an entire clan of atheists. <laughs> like, there may be one or two in the family tree, but, like, the whole thing, no. Yeah. Like, that, I'm, I'm sorry, but no. Like, I just, just no. Yeah. It, it has not happened to me yet. <laughs> Haven't seen it. Not saying it couldn't happen. Yeah. But. You sure? Yeah. Actually, I have encountered that. Wait, you have? You have encountered like a family where it's just like there's no religious element? Mm hmm. I'm pretty sure. Wait, wait, really? Where? What? Yeah. Um, Bert, do you remember the Raffensburgers? Oh, yeah. Pretty sure. I think I. Th- okay, that makes sense. Pretty sure all of them. Yeah. Yeah, they were pretty. They were pretty ahead of their <laughs> ahead of the curve here. Like, they they seemed they seemed very West Coasty. Yeah. From the, in a good Absolutely. way. Like they were they were friendly people, but it was yeah. just like yeah, yeah. I guess I guess I could see that, but mm-hmm. at the same time, even then, unless That's, you know the extended family, I still don't. That's believe true. You. That's like, very true. I feel like as soon as you get to like an uncle, they could or be a, grandpa, a big outlier in the family. In the family, yeah, that could be it. Like I'm telling yeah. you, they're they're, they're splinter cells. Those yeah. things. they're not actual families. Like, you know, you go into the extended family, and then mm-hmm. there you go. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, curb your enthusiasm. They do. They, uh, if you're not familiar, what they do is, uh, I guess Larry David himself writes an outline for each episode, where he has like the scenes, what's going to happen. And kind of maybe like specific phrases or certain things that they want to get to talk about within the scene. And then the actors just completely improvise all the dialogue. And then after, I I think I heard something like, I don't know, between like in the dozen, like, you know, over 10 takes per scene. And then one, like they figure out what kind of what stuff works and what you know what isn't working, and then they like kind of get it all together and make the funniest scene. scene possible. Yeah, <laughs> which is actually just really what a cool formula for a show. Mm. Like literally just putting talented people in a room with a premise and then taking <laughs> taking the cream of that crop and then making it into an actual an actual show. Yeah, what a cool! I I, I just like that process. This is good process. <laughs> I trust the process. And even though there's like each season for the most part has its own overarching story and the series as a whole has had a lot of changes as far as like characters and stuff. You can pretty much jump in at any episode and be fine. Because mm-hmm. it's all very similar humor you can assume the roles of the characters very quickly. Yeah. It's like walking into one of the most talented and also most isolated and believable improv troops on the planet. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to. Yep. And the guest stars they have had, the Seinfeld reunions, the Michael mm-hmm. J. Fox jokes. Mm-hmm. Man. <laughs> the that, Michael J. I, Fox jokes Michael J. Fox <laughs> made up about himself <laughs> for a cause. The, the Michael J. Fox episode is probably... Definitely in my top five, maybe my favorite episode mm-hmm. of the whole series. It's just so well done. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop thinking about just that scene. So good. It's just so good. 
Did you do that on purpose? <laughs> no, it's Parkinson's. <laughs> <laughs> it's all Parkinson's, Larry. Yeah. Allowing him to come back in full swing and just be himself yeah. as a character is a fantastic idea. I'm interested to see where they go with the next season because last last season he's kicked out of New York City. Right, so, so that's kind of a big deal. I mean, maybe he moves back to L.A. Yeah, I would imagine, that, or maybe something even stranger. Mm. Like, yeah, could curb be. your enthusiasm, Vice. <laughs> <laughs> Has to yeah. be Miami, then. You can't do Vice yeah. is a term that could apply to literally anywhere, but it always ends up being Miami. <laughs> yeah, it's the only one that sounds right. It's true. It's the only one that looks good. You can't have, like, I don't know. You can't run around in a white suit in Boston in the fall. <laughs> yeah. But you can Boston in Miami Vice. any day of the week. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right, well, there you have it. From child whispers to curb your enthusiasm. <laughs> so, um, if you enjoyed that, please go ahead and visit facebook.com slash TWC podcast. Give us a like and follow. And make sure you go over to iTunes and rate and review us. And um, we also have our website, twc.ericteribio.com where you can find all sorts of fun stuff and you see pictures and links to the articles we talk about and all that stuff. And, yeah, I'd like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Helen Morgan for our outro song. Helen Mirren? <laughs> <laughs> so thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. That just proves how terrible of a children's book author that lady was. Like, if we were able to get to curb your enthusiasm from it, that, that's not a good sign. Yeah. That's not a good sign. Yeah. That's, um... <laughs> kind of, kind of telling. Kind of telling how easy that was. <laughs>